Well, again, good morning to all of you. It's great to see you today. And I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel and the seventh chapter. Now, if you're going to use a pew Bible, which is great, uh, you might want to turn then to page 893. Page 893. Continue our series in John that we just began last week. This new series really is a, resu- is a resumption, a resuming of a series. We began last year in John, that went through chapter 6, but now we're beginning in chapter 7. And we are going to pick it up, as I said, in John chapter 7, verse 25. This is what we read. Some of the people of Jerusalem said, this is during the Feast of Tabernacles, is not this the man, Jesus, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me, and you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, the great Jewish diaspora throughout the Roman and Greek world? Does he intend to go there, they were thinking, and teach the Greeks? Of course, you and I know he's referring to his crucifixion and to his resurrection and resumption uh, and exaltation and glory. What does he mean by saying, You will seek me? And you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, from his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I ask you now, please, to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, last week we came upon Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and uh, we were introduced at that time to a debate that was taking place, and the debate among the Jews in Jerusalem continues into our passage, 
today, and the debate was over whether Jesus is the Christ. And you heard me read the text. Some of the folks were struck with how Jesus' accusers were silent in the face of his bold declaration that God was his father, that he had come from God, that he was going to return to God. Did their silence mean that really they secretly believed that Jesus was the Christ? Or others in their conversation, they believed that when, when the Christ comes, or when the Messiah comes, he'd be unknown until he appears very suddenly and overwhelmingly. Uh, there'd be no debate over whether he was or was not the Messiah. It would be very, very plain. And I want to say parenthetically, it's true. When Jesus returns, when he returns, you read Matthew 24, as the lightning flows from the east to the west, everyone will know Christ has returned. But they believed this of the Messiah in their day and his coming. But then they observed the fact, well, Jesus is known. He's Jesus of Nazareth. We know where he comes from. And they, they doubted him. They felt they understood his origin. And then there were still others who were countering, yes, yes, maybe that's true, but would the Christ do more signs than this Jesus has done? Wow, just a lot of confusion and antagonism and speculation and uncertainty and sincere effort to understand the prophets and how that would work out. Those prophecies when Jesus, uh, or when the Messiah rather, uh, would come. And all of this was occurring during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles, which we're going to see today, was extremely significant. The Feast of the Tabernacles lasted seven days. It was one of the great feasts of Judaism at that time, along with the Passover and uh, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. You have the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted seven days, and the following day, after the official end of the Feast of Tabernacle, was, of course, the eighth day, an eighth day. It was always a Sabbath. It always fell on the Sabbath. And on that eighth day, everyone in Jerusalem came together. In the most massive gathering, the book of the law called for a holy convocation, a sacred assembly on that day. And that was the most massive expression of worship and praise and thanksgiving to God. And so even though the Feast of Tabernacles officially lasted a week, that eighth day was often commonly referred to as part of the feast. So when verse 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This was in all likelihood that, that eighth day. As you'll see, we'll see, that's pretty important. But here's Jesus. He'd come to Jerusalem sort of uh, incognito and then had, and then had appeared uh, you know, just openly began teaching in the temple about midway through the feast. So for some time, three, four days, whatever it was, he'd been listening to all the doubts and the hope and antagonism and the confusion. And now what he was really doing was he was, he was cutting through all the noise. And he was asking, essentially, this question. And that question was, is anyone here thirsty? Is anyone here thirsty? Because if you are thirsty then let him come and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So amidst all this confusion, all this speculation, Jesus kind of undercuts all that. He says, look, I got a question for you. Are you thirsty? Is anyone here thirsty? When Jesus spoke of living waters, I think the meaning, the meaning of that would have been clear. I mean, the, that this had a spiritual significance would have been quite clear. Um, let me do a comparison for you or with you for a moment. Do you remember back in John chapter 4 how Jesus addressed the woman at the well in Samaria? He addressed her in very similar terms. He'd said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, because Jesus was asking her for a drink of water from the well, he said you would have asked him, and if you knew who he was, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And they went on to describe this as a well of water, a, a, a fountain of water, a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And at first, the Samaritan woman thought Jesus was referring to literal water. But that's not the case here. These were Jews. They were not Samaritans. They had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They had the law. And on some level, so far more significant than for the Samaritan woman, they did understand what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying this. In Jerusalem, at the temple, during the Feast of Tabernacles, on the great day, the Feast of Tabernacles was the largest attended, the best attended of the three Jewish feasts, even more um, uh, better attended and more widely, broadly celebrated than the, than the Passover, if you can imagine it. And this was the feast where water was at the center of the people's worship all week long. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's life-giving care for the children of Israel during its 40 years of wilderness wandering after the Exodus. And so as part of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the people would construct small huts, Sukkot in Hebrew, or tabernacles out of branches, just as symbols or reminders of their temporary dwellings, their forefathers' temporary dwellings during all those 40 years. And each of the seven days of the feast began this way. It began with a water ceremony, worship around water. In the early morning, the high priest would fill a golden pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam which was a bit south and I think east, a little bit east of the temple. It was in Jerusalem. And then the high priest, with a whole priestly procession, would bring this golden pitcher full of water to the temple. And as they came to the inner temple, they entered that inner temple from the south through what was called the water gate. You've read about the water gate before. There would be three, as they entered through the water gate, there were three great blasts would come from the horn, from the shofar, from the ram's horn. And as they entered through the gate with this pitcher of water, the temple choir broke out into the joyous singing of Psalms 113 through Psalms 118. That brick or that group of six psalms is known as the Hallel, the praise, the great Hallel. And the choir would sing all of these psalms. Well, what were they hearing? What was being sung? What were they hearing as the choir sang? And I will just take some 
excerpts from those psalms to give you this idea. Imagine the water is being carried in. The horn has been blown three times. And now, and now, the choir is singing. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name alone be glory because of your love and because of your faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. Amen? That's exactly what they were hearing sung. Only more, only longer. And they were singing it with all of their hearts and all of their joy. And then, that water was poured into a silver bowl. Wine also was poured into its own silver bowl, and both bowls were poured through a funnel and offered to God as part of the morning sacrifice. Every day for seven days that occurred. On the eighth day and the great day, it did not occur. So suddenly the water wasn't there on the eighth day. And what does Jesus say when the water isn't there on the eighth day? Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. This is great theology, the Feast of Tabernacles. People were celebrating that what God had done in the wilderness in bringing water out of a rock, that what God had done is who God is today. He is the water-providing God. He is the God who brings water out of a rock. He is the God who gives life to his people, no matter what. He is the God who not only sustains, but enables to flourish, enables to live, enables to, enables to thrive. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles not only celebrated God's life-giving faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness, but his continued faithfulness in the current year's harvest. So it was a harvest festival as well as a recollection or memorial to what God had provided in the wilderness. The life-giving God is always true to himself, the life-giving God, and he is always true to his people. And whether from a rock in the wilderness or whether from the rains in the season, he provides the people with water. And water meant life. Water meant life. And as a symbol of life that God gives, the water then took on a significance that was far greater than, than its own uh, importance as H2O, as literal water sustaining our biological life. When you read through the course of the Old Testament, as Israel departed from the Lord, as Israel declined, as Israel suffered, the Old Testament prophets during that period began to prophesy. I'm talking about 
a number of them. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Nehemiah, Zechariah. They began to prophesy and in prophesying elevated the significance of water as a symbol of the life of the coming age. Because in one sense in this history, Israel was again in a wilderness. It was again in deep trouble. And they elevated this water as a symbol of the life of the coming age, the certainty of the kingdom to come, the life that would come when the Messiah came, when the son of David came. It became a sign of hope that God knows what we need and he will provide it. He will keep all of his promises to Israel for life, for life with him to dwell with us in spite of all of our sin, in spite of all the forces arrayed against us. Isn't that amazing? And so in Isaiah chapter 44, the Lord had promised, Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So water became the symbol of life. A life is a life that God gives. It's a life of the spirit that the spirit would bring to his people when he came in the great kingdom age to come. So at the Feast of the Tabernacles, water not only recalled the revelation of God's life-giving gift of water from the rock in the wilderness and his present faithfulness, it also anticipated the day. Imagine this water being carried through Jerusalem from the Pool of Siloam. It anticipated the day of the Messiah when, as Zechariah put it in the Old Testament, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The day when Zechariah said, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in the summer and the winter, in other words, constantly. So the Feast of the Tabernacles was not only a celebration of thanksgiving, it was a celebration of hope exactly what it was now I just quoted from uh, Isaiah chapter 44 about this in Isaiah 55 11 chapters later we read what I think surely must have been on Jesus mind when he cried out on the last day of the feast Isaiah 55 1 and going on forward from that reads this way behold or ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Listen, diligent to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love to David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. This was a great promise. And where Isaiah was looking ahead to the end and he's inviting the thirsty to drink here at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus' words sound so similar. But here Jesus announces that he is the one that God has sent to provide those waters. 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we know he's referring to the Holy Spirit because John tells us he's referring to the Holy Spirit and then to a life that is distinguished by fellowship with God forever. So I ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? You realize that you are a trinity. You're a trinity of body, soul, and spirit. We're all so interconnected, body, soul, and spirit, that whatever affects one part of me affects all of me. That's one reason, I think, why Scripture speaks of compassion literally as a gut feeling or shame as an aching of the bones or love as a matter of heart feeling. What affects one part of me affects all of me, right? I mean, we're completely interconnected. I don't think there's any question about that. But at the same time, each aspect of our being has its own unique needs in order to survive. Your body needs air, food, water, sleep, exercise. Your body has many needs. Your soul, your emotional being, the being you are, has its own thirst for love, for belonging, for security. And that's your soul. Animals have souls, according to the Bible. There's souls in animals. I just got a little puppy. I won't go into too many stories about Mr. Tibbs this morning, but I will tell you that from my observation of him, he has a longing for love and belonging and security. He also needs forgiveness. But that's not a story. But then that brings me to this third question. What about your spirit? You know your body has longings. You know your soul has longings. Well, what about your spirit? And the truth of the matter honestly is that our spirit's greatest longing really is for forgiveness. Real forgiveness. For peace. For a deliverance from that sense of guilt and shame and condemnation that we carry in our lives. Real forgiveness. Our spirit thirsts for life with God. Our spirit longs to experience truth. Truth. Both personally and interpersonally. Our spirit longs to find that there is meaning and there is purpose which transcends us, which transcends our life. We know we're not the center of reality. We long for that meaning and that purpose where we can find peace and satisfaction that is unchanging, that is permanent, that is certain in a world, in a universe where everything is changing. What we're longing for is God. We are longing in our spirit for God. Many people don't know that's what they're really longing for, but there's nothing that the human spirit longs for that can be satisfied in any other way than through a relationship with the living God. 
That's foolish, really, to try and satisfy our spiritual thirst by substituting what satisfies us physically or emotionally. But as human beings, that's, honestly, that's what we tend to do all the time. John Piper puts it this way. He says, we are the only species of God's creation afflicted and blessed with chronic longing. There is a chronic restlessness. We fight without success against an epidemic of boredom because we are looking to satisfy our thirst in the wrong places. We're always grasping for the next big thing, the next fad, the next fashion. Even within the church you see this. Or if we're not grasping at those things, in our boredom and in our restlessness, we just settle for getting in trouble. But here, Jesus is offering instead the experience of fellowship with the living God that results from real personal dealings between you and Christ, and Christ and you. That's what he's offering the people of Jerusalem, and that's what he's offering us today. Listen one more time carefully as I read what Jesus said. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And I think that is to drink in Christ. But what does it mean to drink in Christ, drink from Christ? The next words are, whoever believes in me. And that's what it means to drink Christ, to believe in him, to receive him by faith, to put our trust in him, to open ourselves to him. How do we think about this? This is one way you can think about it. I was looking at this and praying about it this week. Our spirit, taking in Jesus through faith, I think is a lot, bears resemblance to our taking in a beautiful sunrise or beautiful sunset. You know, we totally miss how beautiful and glorious a sunset is until we actually look at it. I mean, day in and day out, almost every sunset's beautiful, every time we can see one. But how often do we actually stand there and think about what we're looking at? How often do we actually stand there so that the brilliance and the colors of the sunset fill us? This, this amazing, and we look at this amazing revelation of light, we realize it's not of us, it's not of our little planet, and we look at this beautiful scene before us, and we, we, we take it in. We say, that's the way we talk. We, we take it in, and suddenly it is, in a sense, it is within us. We close our eyes, and we still see it. It renews us. We feel grateful for it. It lifts our spirits. We feel, we feel hope. You know, when we're upset, we're distressed. Sometimes, many of us, I'm sure, we want to go out or we can just, in solitude or without interruption and without distraction, take in some of the beauty and the glory of this creation. But you know the beauty and the glory of this creation simply are a mirror or a pale reflection of God. Simply a pale reflection of the Creator Himself. And the Creator, the one through whom God has made all things, is Christ. And I want to say, I think that the Holy Spirit is very much like 
light streaming from the sun. If you want the light, don't worry about the light. Look at the sun. You behold the sun in order to receive the light and to see all the color and the beauty and the glory and to have that fill your life, to fill who you are. The Holy Spirit is like, like cool, refreshing, living water. But, you know, the thing is, to receive that water, you have to come to the, to the source. You have to immerse yourself in it, and then you receive it. So the thing isn't the water. The thing isn't the light. The thing is the sun. The thing is the source of this amazing water. And when we find ourselves in relation to the glory and the beauty and the majesty, in other words, when you find yourself in relationship to who Jesus Christ really is, that's when we experience, that's when we experience the Holy Spirit. Today we, uh, we sang a lot of songs. Did you hear them about the beauty, the majesty, the glory of God? This isn't just so much words. The people who wrote these songs were filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled, why? Because they were filled up with Christ. They were filled up with the truth of God. And that filled them so much that overflowing, they began to write these lyrics. During our, during our um, vigilant prayer time before worship today, <clears throat> someone quoted, and the beginning of the time was set on Psalm 96, 6, that describes God in this way, that splendor and majesty are before him, Strength and beauty are in his, his sanctuary. This is the truth, that when we behold, when we come to Christ, when we behold him for who he is, we find ourselves being filled up. We find ourselves being renewed. And it is not a, a trick of our physical being. It is, it is not a gimmick involving our soul or our emotions. It's because our soul's thirst is being satisfied. So Jesus says, are you thirsty? Are you aware of your thirst? Because if you are aware of your thirst, then come to me to drink. Because whoever believes in me, out of him living water will flow. And you, know what the, you know what the Bible says about Jesus. Not only is he the son of God, of course, S-O-N, the son of God, but he's also called the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, who will rise with healing in his wings. And very shortly at the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 8, Jesus will also stand up and he will also cry out, not only that um, come to me and drink, he will stand up and cry out in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you hear that juxtaposition? Come to me for living water. Living water. I am the light of life. I hope you see that connection. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not to produce some momentary delight in us that is quickly going to fade away, 
which is what happens when existentially we're before sunset and we walk away and the sunset disappears and it's gone and we soon forget about it. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the eternal Son of God. We're talking about the living, risen Christ, the glorified one, the Savior of your souls, the Redeemer who's going to return. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to provoke within us such a relationship of faith in Christ. That as we behold him, we feel encouraged, we feel convicted, we feel drawn. And in that relationship with Christ, we come to the point of saying, I am in him and he lives in me. And I'm telling you, that is when your heart is filled to overflowing. And that's what Christ wants for each and every one of you, no matter what the circumstances of your life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. It is not a promise of an emotional high. It is a promise of spiritual union with your son. So the most foundational thing about us in our lives is our life with him and with you through him that no one can take from us. It is what sustains us. It is the rock of our existence. It is the life that we love and that we know we will always have. Has nothing to do with our physical being. Has nothing to do with whether we're biologically alive or dead. It has everything to do with Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would satisfy our spiritual longing for water that you would show each one of us that this is really what we long for. We care for our bodies. We're deeply in touch, many of us, most of us, with our emotions. But there is this spiritual dimension of us that will not be quenched. This thirst that will not be ignored. There's much more to us than matter. God, thank you for Jesus, the giver of living water. And I do pray you'd minister to my brothers and sisters and everyone here today, those who know you, those who don't know you, that you would, Father, draw them to your son or closer to him. We do get distracted, God. We get wrapped up in our own stuff, our own emotions, our own physical issues. All sorts of things around us distract us. And when that happens, we feel as if the water isn't flowing but it is. We have to come. Receive it. We have to reposition our souls, our hearts, our spirits to see Christ afresh. And that too is from you. Amen.